Hello and welcome to episode 153 of the CogniCast, a podcast about software and the people who create it. I'm Russ Olson. And we certainly do have a great show lined up. This week, Gotti talks to Chris Nuremberger about Python and Clojure and using Python from Clojure. And along the way, they'll touch on JNA and Sudokus and a whole raft of other interesting things. But before we get started, I did want to acknowledge, well, the state of the world. We here at Cognitech recognize that technology and software don't just happen in isolation. We're all part of the world, and the things that happen in the world affect us all. Times like these remind me of something one of my early mentors used to tell me. Life is a work in progress. The key words there are work and progress. You got to put in the work to make progress. But for now, sit back and open your ears and your mind to Gotti and Chris in episode 153 of the Cognicast. Welcome, everybody. Today is March 25th, and this is the Cognicast. I'm Gotti Shaban, and today it's my great pleasure to welcome Chris Nuremberger to the show. Thanks for being with us, Chris. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, I know the the world is a wild place right now. We have lockdowns all over the planet. Um, I just saw a report: 25% of uh, of the population of the the entire globe is uh is under lockdown i'm under lockdown here i don't know uh you're where are you i'm in uh boulder colorado today is a beautiful but windy day and we are absolutely under lockdown well i hope this will be a little slice of sanctuary for our listeners and we can uh maybe talk about tech maybe talk about what's going on around us maybe not i don't know uh we'll see where it takes us but um so tell me, what do you uh, what do you do day to day, Chris? Well, day to day, me and two other guys have a consulting business named Tech Ascent, and we have you know a stable of clients that we do work for, and so um, that takes about sixty percent of my time, and then I have about forty percent of my time that I spend mainly on open source stuff or on closed source stuff, just things that I want to push forward. So, Chris, traditionally on the Cognicast, we like to start off uh, with a common question, which is to relate a piece of art or an experience of art uh, that you've been through um, to the listener. A piece of art or an experience of art? It could be anything. Well, that's interesting. Experience of art. Well, you know, I, uh, (laughs) my wife and I, uh, I met my wife in a ballet class and, um, I started dating her after knowing her for many years after a tango class. 
and um, I asked her to marry me in Buenos Aires. Wow. So I think my experience with art, I think my experience with art that has been very touching to me has been the whole pathway through tango and and learning how to work really closely with someone else and be finding you know a love between yourself and someone else huh that's that's a really that's a really interesting story my one of my first jobs in college was to uh play piano for a ballet class in pittsburgh no oh, yeah uh, yeah yeah i would uh i would improvise waltzes and you know little mazurkas and um yeah just just for the you know just just to get through the um just to get through the rehearsal and the uh um you know i don't even know what what he would be called but uh the ballet master would call out something and i would play i would play in that style and if i if i was you know i was like 20 years old so i might have been wildly off but um I would try to improvise in the style if it wasn't if it wasn't on um he would stop and then just you know just clap out like no I want it like this or more bouncy yep. <laughs> you know I would like start from the beginning <laughs> <laughs> but oh that's really interesting yeah um, <clears throat> well great I music I love dance I think it's so interesting that Cognitech has so many musicians isn't that weird yeah, not a lot of dancers though. No. I so I think a lot of um listeners might be familiar with uh Lib Python CLJ. Um and I think we sh- we should definitely talk about that. That's part of the the open source efforts that uh that you've pushed. Um it's super interesting to me. Um but uh yeah. do, do do your um do your Consulting clients, do you focus on a particular vertical or is it all over the, all over the map or? No, we do actually focus on a particular vertical. Um, our, our tagline is sort of cloud native data intensive applications. So applications where you want it hosted in the cloud in one form or another, and we work on multiple clouds right now and applications where you have a lot of data and you want some sort of sophisticated interaction and analysis of it and you want use your users to have access to it so some of that is complex like admin apps with uh admin applications with a particularly like in-depth user acl system mixed with a bunch of data Hmm. and some of that's just a big data thing like pulling data from government websites every hour and processing it and formatting it into a format that you can then query it. I see. I see. So, uh, so you have big data plus cloud plus high performance. Let's see. This seem like, uh, um, triplicate challenges, especially the, the, the high performance in, in cloud (laughs) that that'll be, that'll be interesting to get into, um, a bit. Um, so where does, uh, so tell me, tell me about libpython CLJ. Where does that um, play into this? Well, a lot of the best numerics access to the best numeric systems, I feel like are through Python right now. And a lot of the cutting edge machine learning research is definitely through Python. So with a really deep 
integration with Python, I can just make sure that uh, all of us in Clojure have access to the latest tools to do anything we want in the areas that I like to work in. And so those are related to like neural nets, they could be related to high performance compilers, they could be related to kind of an, an, any number of things, but Python has pretty good support for a lot of those. So this is so this is akin to getting support from the from Java through Clojure, and then now we're, we're we've subsumed JavaScript with Clojure Script. And are you saying that we can now access pretty much anything in Python via yeah. Clojure? Yep. Well, that's pretty cool. That's like a, a slow invasion. Yep, and I did it specifically. Well, not just me. At this point, there's been a lot of people that have helped with it, but I initially did it as a way to, um, by extending the Clojure language. And so you can call a Python function just passing in a persistent vector or persistent map, and that's converted to a Python tuple or a Python dictionary on the way in to the object, or it's converted to something that derives from the Python ABC collections. So it looks like that type of collection to all of Python. Hmm. Um, that's one example, but that's the, the interop is really deep. I bind the Python objects to the garbage collector. So when the Python object falls out of scope, then the deref call is made on that object at that time. I mean, there's a lot of fairly subtle things that I did to make it feel like you can just use Python from Clojure and wow. you're not, you're not really, it's even more subtle than a lot of the Java interop in a lot of ways, because I will do type conversions when the Java interop, thankfully, doesn't. Wow, 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 wow. So uh, so I, I do a lot of cloud ops, and sometimes I write a bunch of glue scripts with uh, with Python. I don't, I've never really, uh, um, I've never really done high performance numerics in Python, although I know it's huge. Um, but I usually do like you know command line glue glue kind of things. That's that's the extent of my uh, involvement. But now I'm going to be more likely to be able to, you know, just pull something down and use it, and put it in a nice you know nice closure gloves around it. Um, wow. So 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 tell me how does it work? So it's an FFI. Is that what I hear you're saying? Is uh, you're yep. you can call I, uh, things yeah. through the we have uh, part of the tech, uh, part of the tech ascent technical stack, includes a very thorough binding to uh, JNA. Gotcha. And that's uh, a library that is um, used to do like yeah, load library, find symbol in library, call function in library. So you um, so you link to that via JNA. You find mm -hmm. the you find the thing that you want to call, and then there's some then there's some data conversion from closure things to you said Python ABC collections. Sometimes, well, you got to. I mean, the Python has a big C library, and that's the way a lot of people use it. And so there's a non-trivial amount to learn about using the Python C library. So there's a lot of embedded knowledge in libpython CLJ about managing the GIL, which is the, the global interpreter lock of Python, mm -hmm. and just a lot of esoteric edges of libpython, the mm -hmm. actual C library that we get to through JNA. 
Well, let's go back to your question. So uh, could you repeat that? Sure. I was, I was wondering um, how this all, how, how this is all put together. Um, so, you know, in, in Clojure, uh, the, the compiler emits bytecode and the bytecode directly calls Java methods. In, um, in ClojureScript, the compiler emits JavaScript, which calls the right thing on the, on the JavaScript side. But um, for libPythonCLJ, uh, you write Clojure and it calls a function that has been discovered through JNA, right? Well, yeah. I mean, yes. <laughs> <laughs> then what happens? Take, take me through the life of an invocation, I guess. That would oh, be an interesting man. thing. We have a blog post on this. Okay. And the reason that we have a blog post is because it's really non-trivial, but let's go to our blog at techascent.com and I will re-highlight it just real quick. It's not something I can just remember offhand, you know? Sure, um, sure. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in just like the, the, uh, the high level um, shape of how, how it happens, the workflow. Yeah, okay, well, let's talk. Python is a language of dictionaries. Mm -hmm. And so a diction in this case, a dictionary and a map mean the same thing. It's not differentiate between the two of them. So when I say dictionary, you can think persistent hash map if you want, but they're mutable. So they're more like java.util.hashmap. Anyway, um, Python's a language of dictionaries. So when I load up Python, you can, one of the functions that I, I find is the C function import module. And so you import a module and that gives you back a dictionary that we can scan using the standard Python kind of uh, operations on dictionaries that are exposed through the C library. Mm -hmm. One of those symbols in that module, symbol being just a, you know something in the dictionary, is potentially something that Python identifies as callable. And if Python identifies that as callable, I wrap that object with closure.lang.ifn, hmm. an implementation of that. So when you get that object back, you can call it like you can any other closure function. And I take care of all the marshalling into and out of Python underneath the covers during that call. I see. So just it. Uh... The, what does the marshalling include? Um, well, like it could include, it's going to be, it's going to, if you're, <laughs> it probably will include bridging objects into Python. So if they're simple things, if they're Python atomic objects, so numbers and strings, mm -hmm. then I'm just going to copy straight up into Python, create a Python object that stands for the thing. And if they're, you know, a vector, then if it's a short vector, I make a tuple. If it's a long vector, then I make a Python list. I make something that, I, I either make a concrete tuple or I make something that looks like a list. There's a bunch of kind of difficult things to get right in that area that let you work with the widest range of libraries and we're still not perfect because um, Python tuples and Python lists are really very similar and persistent. We use persistent vectors in situations where Python people would actually use a list. And so but there's a bunch of rules for the basic data types that you can have. I mean, really, if, if you boil Clojure down into some simple things, you have keywords and symbols, 
and those are represented as strings. You have strings and numbers, and those are represented like pretty much verbatim as they are. And then you have a couple containers. The containers derived from java.util.list or java.util.map, and those are going to have a standard conversion set of rules applied to them. And that's like a, a quick hand way that the whole thing actually works. And depending on what how you get the function, I've wrapped it with a layer that will convert by bridging the list or map, which means it doesn't copy the whole thing into Python, but just gives Python a thing that derives from the right interfaces. Or I actually do copy the full on thing into Python. It just depends on how you get the function actually. I see. Okay. So this, this gives me a little bit of a mental model of what's going on. Um, and so functions like importing a library, those are just ordinary, uh, 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 Python methods that you you access as well in the same in the same way, right? Yeah, exactly. I'm assuming there's still a little bit of stuff to make uh, a whole Python module available as a namespace in Clojure. Well, that's actually you know James Tolton did a lot of work on that, and James and I both I mean we both have taken everything and then revamped it a couple times, but yeah, that's true. So that moves into the actual the deeper level integration and that's stuff that is you know that's not the core kind of engine level that's more like we've got the engine defined and we can find symbols in python and we can call them and now we've kind of reverse engineered a lot of closures namespace mechanics so that i can take a python module and create a closure namespace out of it with the top level um dictionary entries of the python module described as various different types of namespace elements. I see. So what what about uh what about applications that people are are using this or exploring it uh with? I know my my uh, uh my colleague Karen Meyer's been super uh super interested and busy working on uh some of these uh usages of libpython clj but um what what kind of stuff have you have have you seen in the wild that m might have surprised you or uh, interest you um i'd say most things interest me i really liked it when people got into pandas so really fast i mean before libpython was even half working alan marazzi wrapped pandas with it and now with how deep the language integration is, I'd say the pandas wrapper is less necessary depending on how far you want to get into pandas. But pandas is a good toolkit that is just useful. Like if you want to load anything and do some stuff on it, pandas is a good choice. So there's a few things in the Python ecosystem that don't have good representation in Java. Um, and there's a few things that are just so much better tested that even though they have a representation in Java, they just behave in a more normal way in Python. Like pandas or... Like pandas, exactly. Although, although looking at pandas, looking at the code that Alan writes, especially when he really means it, pandas is, is a very esoteric library in terms of how it decided to represent kind of a lot of things. So if you learn pandas, I wouldn't say that it's a normalized representation, but you've got a very powerful system that does work. I have a bunch of, uh, I have a bunch of deployment scripts that I've written in Python uh, that just interact with S3. They pull something down, parse it, and sling a CloudFormation stack. Um, I'm using the, you know, the Python SDK in um, in 
the Python AWS SDK called Botu3. And um, that's that I use I use that um, not you know I feel like every time I use a tool that's not Clojure I need to justify it to myself and now we have a you know we have a native SDK in Clojure but um, some of these Python scripts are like they're they're so small that they're like nine or ten lines and they they do one thing and it's deployed in a lambda in AWS. Um, so what was the first thing you did with libpython CLJ, Chris? So the very first thing I did was we were contracted to audit a weather forecasting system. And so those systems are where you take a bunch of data from a given format from NOAA, you run a lot of pre-processing on it. Usually you have a machine dedicated just to ingest or a few machines dedicated just to ingest alone. And then you try to serve data from that data set. And that could be a point query where you have a lat long and a time. And I want to know what the weather is going to be. Well, I guess you have a lat long and a time and some set of variables. And that's basically, that could be a shape file instead of a lat long. It could be a point, as I said, a point. It could be kind of a lot of things, but really it all boils down to point queries at some level. And then you also have map tile layers, which are you pre-process all the data and you output big images, many, 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 many images an hour. And so my first job was to take apart this weather forecasting system and try to dive through all the NumPy and the crazy conventions and all these other things that, that happen when you have big Python systems and try to figure out what worked and what didn't, what was taking a long time, you know, that kind of thing. But it was basically, if you can imagine, uh, if you can imagine, you know, somebody trained with NumPy working on a system for three years and then just dumping in your lap and saying, hey, does this work or not? And it kind of worked. And <laughs> Kind of? Actually, I shouldn't say that. It really did work really well, but the question was how did it work and when would it fall over and what did yeah. it do? What? And you got to dive through all those things and NumPy is really dense. So being able to run various functions external to that program using libpython clj like i could just import a module and just pull out a couple functions and try them with my own inputs helped a lot so more like black box testing almost oh big time i had to start from the black box pretty much huh. and work in from there to the data so, so when you say audit you mean um you 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 mean analyzing the code base and making sure it does what it purports to do Yep. And finding out the boundaries, not like audit as in, did you predict the right forecast? And, you know, no, that was still part of it. What, what are the oh. error bounds? How accurate is it? Do they need to use the types of blending that they're doing to get more accuracy? Or is actually what they're doing re resulting in less accuracy than if you were just to take the forecast from Noah naively and and use them straight off the bat? That kind of question was also part of the questions. Wow. Wow. So it's and presumably the. The author of the system or the authors might not have been around or were they was it something that sort of dropped in your lap or um the author had fallen basically the company and the author had had fallen into a bunch of uh animosity with each other and hmm. so um yeah the author wasn't around I see. Okay, I don't. I don't want to press you if it's if it's not something you want to talk about. That's that's fine. Um, interesting. Well, often you know this is why honestly this is why when I audit things I charge a lot because you're never going to come out. You're never going to come out with more friends than you went in with. 
So if you ask me, and I've done this before, if I get asked to audit a company technically, it's going to be expensive because I know I'm not going to make any networking connections other than potentially other people on my auditing team or something like that. And that company, even if I do a great job, you know, the company's not going to be a big fan of me at the end of the day. Maybe. I don't know. The If, if, if you're auditing in, in terms of if you're holding up a mirror to somebody and they see themselves and they might not like what they see and they point fingers or, or stuff like that. Yeah. It's not going to be pleasant, but I don't know. I feel like there's a way to do it where it's positive, but if it's like, you know, I mean, sometimes it's like a security audit where you're, you're giving somebody a mountain of extra work <laughs> to fall back into compliance. <laughs> Um, what so, I was yeah, doing was that... trying to figure out the value of a cryptocurrency company for investors. Oh, yeah, that could be, that can be hard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I used to work for a cryptocurrency company. I actually, um, I like crypto. I think it's fun, but you know, it's, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors in that space. Yeah. There's, there's something there. There's something there. It's, uh. Um, what's there is snake oil, <laughs> but there's, there's a real core too. Um, it's just so early to tell. And the, the crypto fanatics are, um, they're very hard to talk to in a, you know, in, in, in that space. So, well, they, yeah. And I think also the value of cryptos so wildly, it's not pinned to anything meaningful, so it can really vary a lot. Uh, you know, if I'm an investor in that space, I'm really being careful. For sure. <laughs> yeah, right now, especially yeah. as people seek to, to, you know, get out of the traditional markets and have, have some sort of perceived stability. It's well, yeah, enough. that's actually, the thing is where I believe crypto has a place right now is if you think your national currency is less, is more volatile than Bitcoin, for instance then I think it's actually a good idea to own some Bitcoin. It's a hedge. Hmm. Like what situation would that be? Like Venezuela or? Argentina, Venezuela, hmm. Brazil at the moment. There's a lot of currencies, potentially even Mexico. There's a lot of currencies that are devaluating fast, rapidly to the dollar at this second. Hmm. Um, and if you have one of those currencies, a Bitcoin's not dropping in value relative to the dollar every day. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I'm kind of a pessimist about about Bitcoin. Um, the it might hold it might hold value uh, long term, but it's it's you know it's, it's hard to spend and you know all the all those problems about the the liquidity of it. And, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, oh for sure. But as a tool to hedge against your currency, I think it's reasonable for some percentage of your wealth. I mean, some of that and some in gold that. Those types of things, it's a, it's a hedge. I wouldn't expect to get rich off it. No, for sure. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, just to, to diversify. Yeah. Um. Wow. So so you audited a well, you you tried to analyze the the value of the the cryptocurrency or the company producing the cryptocurrency. Well, it was a company that was basically doing banking and loans off cryptocurrency holdings, and so are there two aspects we were asked to go in. Number one was is is their technical proficiency sufficient that they won't get all their cryptocurrency stolen 
And that was a resounding yes. They were actually really careful. Not that some really well-informed inside person couldn't have figured out a way around all their checks, because that's always possible. But from the outside, it would have been really long. Air gaps in the right places, all sorts of other things. Wow. Um, yeah, they were good. And then the other question is like, just looking at the business, you know, and that's something that we all did together because I'm not an investment expert. So me and the investors and everybody else who was auditing the company sat down and, was, and said like, you know, these are the scenarios that could happen. You know, what, is this a good investment or not? Um, so that was interesting. I really enjoy that type of work. I really like auditing software because I, I like to learn how other people do things. It does inform how you approach your own software to be able to, to look at others and, mm -hmm. and, you know, see what, see what works. And you see a lot of commonalities, um, over, uh, over time. Um, you do like, and it also helps there's, there's, well, I've been working with a, a gentleman in the closure community. He goes by the handle of join R. Um, and he's been really, really helpful with, helping me optimize various things. We teamed up on a Sudoku solver, kind of Norvig Sudoku solver and tried to like really make it as fast as you possibly could without implementing an actual solver. Um, and just just by mechanically using an iterator here and using this, that, or the other thing and type hitting this here. And, and it was really helpful to have him. People, both of us have years of experience trying to do this, but both of us together were able to really come up with something that was considerably faster than either one of us ourselves. That's where I think the best stuff comes from. That sounds fun. The uh, so, so you you took the the Norvik Sudoku solver and directly just beefed it up. Not exactly. The first thing I did was implement it just naively in Clojure without mm -hmm. changing anything. And the funny thing was, is its performance was roughly in line with Python's, um, which is crazy. Norvik knows fast paths through Python. Um, but then uh, then I looked at the algorithm and I split it into more pieces so that I could I could basically apply more numerical kind of techniques on it to put it really generally and that got us a foot up big time and then and then uh, Tom and I sat there messing with it for a while and we got it way a good bit faster I think we ended up with something that was like 10 times faster than the Norvig's version in Python and that made us feel good and then we pulled up a real solver on it and the real solver was a thousand times faster than ours. <laughs> what, what do you mean a real solver? I mean Choco or Loco or I can't remember. Huh. Uh, an actual SAT solver on it. Ah, I see. <laughs> and it was we were we were getting times in seconds, and the big the, the solvers were getting times in milliseconds. Wow. Sometimes tens of milliseconds, but still at the low tens, you know. Wow. That was also pretty fun. <laughs> So you were telling me um, in our in our pre-show role that uh, you're, you've been doing some closure, high-performance, numeric work uh, that is not based on interop with Python or you know take, uh, taking advantage of NumPy or um, things like that. Can you tell me about yep. that a little bit? Yeah, I think that gets down to the library that I feel like is the closest to what I really enjoy doing in Clojure, and that's the data type library from TechAscent. Um, and I think that library is maybe not named well, but at this point it's been named what it's been named forever. So tech.datatype is definitely my favorite library on the planet 
that I've ever written in my life. Um, cool. <laughs> although that changes daily, I always come back to tech data type because it just embodies so many core principles in numeric computing. It's got enough indexing algorithms. I can implement some portion of APL on it. It's got really fast optimized copies that boil down to array copy, even for complex tensors a lot of times, complex indimensional objects. It's just got all these really core algorithms that I used a lot when I was building graphics engines at NVIDIA. Um, and I basically have tried to encode a lot of those that knowledge over time into this library. Wow. So, and it's, it's pure Java. It's pure Java. And it performs. Yep. <laughs> I mean, yep. I, it's no surprise to me, but I think that that surprises a lot of people. Um, uh, we last week there was a, the, a release of one of the new um, JEPs, which is sort of the the Java improvement process, um, and it's about a new vector API where you can write high level Java code um, or relatively high level Java code, and it compiles down into SIMD uh, instructions on whatever platform uh, you're running. But the interesting thing about it is um, it's uh, it's shape agnostic. So no matter what the um, what the underlying width of the vectors are on whatever CPU you're using, uh, it will make the right call um, and help you write code that um, accounts for the like the the tricky stuff of like you know you're iterating over some matrix who whose um, bounds aren't a, an even multiple of the underlying array width. So you have like, oh, some yeah. ragged stuff at the end that you need uh -huh. to deal with. Um, so I think that'll be really interesting to have the JVM. Um, I always tell people not to sleep on the JVM because, you know, I guess there's, you know, there's a common ideological perception online that you see like, oh, the JVM is just big and old. But uh, but it really you, if you sleep on it you're gonna you're gonna miss something and um, getting high performance SIMD is gonna be um, it's gonna be huge for people who are doing native uh, native high performance uh, numerics or audio codecs video codecs yeah and I guess there's an, you can you can take that so the so okay let's let's form a little bit of a hierarchy here. Um, we have a for loop where you're adding a, two floating point numbers together from two arrays. That's one level of the hierarchy. Then I can put SIMD objects in those arrays and tell the compiler to use some sort of parallelized add. That's another level of the hierarchy. Okay, that's one level up. That's like you're binding closer to the hardware at that point. Like a some level. You tell the compiler through some pragma that do this. Do this a smarter way. Yeah, basically, but you're not actually changing your algorithm. So you're not doing much in terms of like changing the way you're iterating through memory or something like that. If you jump up probably five levels from what we've just talked about, you ended a place called uh, what I think is, is called TVM, the tensor VM. And what that does is it allows you to write an algorithm in a very kind of abstract way. And then you can reschedule bits and pieces of that algorithm for different and cache different parts of that algorithm at different times. 
So sorry, I think you cut out for a second. You could reschedule different bits of it for different CPUs. You said for different, you know, if you have a complex algorithm where you're going to be say, like, let's just take a box blur on an image. It's not even that complex, but basically I'm going to take every four pixels and, and blur them together. Mm -hmm. um, you can do that in a lot of different ways. And what TVM allows you to do is, and I have examples of this on our, our library, basically you can, you can describe the algorithm very purely and it's a pure functional definition of an algorithm. And then I can run a scheduling pass on it and I can tell it very explicitly, I want you to work uh, in tiles of 16 mm. by 16 or something like that. You can tile things, you can change. I want to calculate all of the X before I calculate all the Y. I can basically do all these sorts of things after the algorithm definition. And so just saying like the, the far out vision of a lot of these things is being able to describe your algorithms one way and being able to schedule them for various hardwares in different ways. And Interesting. Yeah, TVM is really, really, really interesting. As a compiler, somebody who likes compilers, TVM is fascinating because it actually outperforms C++. And I do mean handwritten C++ that people care about. I was able to write, basically, I was able to write image scaling algorithms that performed better than OpenCV. And OpenCV is hand-tuned like CIMD instructions by Intel if you look at the source code behind the algorithms I was trying to aiming at. Huh. But TVM basically allowed me to outperform it using Clojure quote closure in this case, because I was using native buffers. Well, I'm definitely going to put a link to TVM in the in the show notes. But uh, so so TVM is a compiler stack or yeah. uh, some sort of um, very high level compiler for um, what's the T? What does TVM stand for? Tensor. Tensor VM. Oh, of course you said that. <laughs> yeah. Um, wow. Um, and for me, it was a watershed moment when that happened. Because never in my life, and I programmed C++ and Java for a long time. And I remember years and years ago when people kept telling me that Java would be faster than C++. And it was pretty much, yeah, call me back when you're even within a factor of 10. Mm. Um, and now it's not really C++ or Java, but I have a system that I can defeat a lot of the things I used to do with C++ in. And I'd never seen that before. I love that word defeat in this case. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's a perpetual, uh, argument that can you achieve low level performance in a high level language? Um, mm -hmm. I think we've been sort of arguing that out in the industry for, for decades. Um, and I think there's a lot of existence proofs that yes, you can. Um, there's some interesting, uh, naysayers like, um, Mike Paul, the uh, the author of LuaJIT, um, claims that uh, that a, a handwritten interpreter um, can beat anything uh, anything for Lua, and the LuaJIT um, interpreter is written in in hand, handwritten assembly uh, with jumps and very careful um, very careful management of the in interpreter state. Um, and that in the interpreter in LuaJIT, not even the JIT, um, outperforms like the baseline uh, compiler in uh, the baseline JavaScript compiler for uh, in Chrome, um, which is interesting. Then there's another naysayer um, where there's um, uh, Daniel Bernstein, the you know the crypto crypto guru, um, 
he gave this great talk where it was called the death of the optimizing compiler. Um, and he argues that the experts will always win. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's an interesting talk. Um, I don't think the video is online, but the, the slides are, but I, you know, I, I, I have doubts about it because sometimes you lose performance in not the places that you think you lose performance. And sometimes you spend optimizing effort in, in, in a corner of the code that really doesn't even contribute 1% of the performance. Well, and sometimes your problem changes ever so slightly and the part of the code that's the optimization problem changes. The problem, I mean, if you take a code base and you very carefully optimize it, I mean, just so carefully that it's just this little diamond of high performance, then, you know, it doesn't take a, a new person with one pull request. You lose all those gains in one move. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's Easily. a great point. I mean, it's high it's performance a lot, uh, comes with rigidity a lot of the time and with with uh, it's anti-generic, right? I think performance and memory usage both have that characteristic. They're both these global properties that like anybody playing in the same shared pool can sync everybody else easily. <laughs> That's that's really interesting. So it's not it's not really a, a tension between uh, high level language and low level performance. It 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 might be just genericity. Yeah, I think in like f to go to the first guy's point that he could handwrite uh, an interpreter. I, I don't mean to be rude, but like an interpreter is not the hardest problem in the world. Absolutely, yeah. It's a, so, it's a single case. Yeah, exactly. You know your instruction set. You know the problem. It never changes. Um, places where I've seen compilers absolutely dominate experts has been, for instance, um, some of the Photoshop filters that have like 200 different kernels in them. So there's two or 300 different steps in this kernel. Each one is somewhat complex. That's where um, I've seen high-performance compilers dominate even handwritten code by people who care a lot about how fast this stuff is. So it, it just kind of depends on your problem. For a simple enough problem, I think I can agree. The experts can find like a crazy assembly instruction that in some odd way completes the problem or something like that. But as you start raising the problem complexity up, I think that your expectation of that is difficult. And once you've handwritten assembly, your chances of changing that to adapt to a new hardware architecture or to a different memory profile are just zero without making mistakes. Absolutely. I don't want the experts to be to be. I, I want there to be experts, but I don't want them to have a, a, a monopoly on writing high performance code. I want that to be as widespread as possible. Yeah, I love I love making things fast. I hear you. I have uh, I have uh, yeah. That's why I really suggest going to TVM. And there's a there's a library. I can't remember the name of it that TVM was initially based off of. And this guy got a PhD from MIT for writing a paper on it. Our website on TVM, where I, I have closure bindings to TVM, goes through all of this in great detail. So if you have a moment, like at some point in the future, um, his the, the MIT paper, when he made his PhD, they did a head-to-head -head against some Adobe engineers for Photoshop. And they <laughs> beat them. That's great. Yeah, because for a lot of these really complex, if you imagine a graph of complex things you have to do, they were able to basically run a hyper optimizer on it, on the graph. 
and they came up and somehow it figured out details of where to calculate this partial result there and store it in this shared memory here. And it was able to do all this and test it out, you know, a thousand times faster than you can by hand. And eventually they're just kind of randomly hyper-optimized. I think they did research. I don't think they used Bayesian methods or anything, but they were able to beat the experts by just um, being able to try things faster. Well, I, uh, I can get behind that. That's a, that's a really encouraging and positive result. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, I have a theory. So I've, I have a theory. I think it's controversial, but basically I have a theory that, um, you know, if your performance is IO bound, then I think that your first job is to batch things and make your performance not as IO bound if you can. And it, once your performance is CPU bound, converting your problem more and more into a numeric sense, which is what the computer operates at natively anyway, is going to be the pathway to getting to more and more performance. And that ends at TVM. Hmm. So that's a general statement of all performance problems, <laughs> <laughs> okay. which is why I think it's controversial. And I think lots of people could poke holes in that in various ways. But generally speaking, if you're IO bound, you're stuck. Yeah. You can't I mean, win. The IO dot dominates until you remove that. Yep. I always dominate until I remove that. Once you remove that, you start getting CPU bound. Well, now you need to start thinking about how to restructure your algorithm so that, you know, you're working in a big old block of contiguous memory when you can and who knows what else. Yeah, it's still it's still a machine underneath and the yes. machine operates in a certain way. Yeah. So. Yeah. And so, you know, this is one area where I think me and Zach Tellman really see things somewhat similarly in that we're both trying to we both, and he's, he doesn't work on Clojure anymore, which I, which I think is a shame because I come across his libraries all the time and I think they're great. But um, I think we both like to take Clojure and see how fast we can make anything run still using Clojure, although sometimes superficially. It's certainly a first goal to get, uh, to just write the algorithm in the simplest way as possible. And if mm -hmm. that's Clojure, that's, you know, that's the right way. I mean, I, I um in my work well, a as a lot of times consultant, that's it, you're done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and and you stop, and you yeah. don't you don't need to do anything else if if you know um, if it's if performance isn't even part of your SLA, then 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 you're absolutely done before you start. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I don't know. As a consultant, I see a lot of I I see a lot of um, like premature optimization in the wild. Um, even stuff like you know, I'm using into some I'm closure core into with a set literal versus like just calling set or using closure set even when it when it maps more to the semantics of what you what you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, I see a lot of like choices where people say like I'll ask like Hey, why are you using this function? And somebody will say um, I heard it's faster or it seems faster in this one situation. Um, but while it might, while that might be true in whatever the situation is, um, you know, it's it's just it's a preoccupation that's not really related to what uh, what your you know what your code's trying what what your code's ultimately trying to do, right? Right. Um, so it's not it's not necessarily premature premature optimization as it's like you know. Yeah, I, I guess that's the the essence of the the word is like caring about optimization when that's not even part of your goal. Um, not to say that you want to write slow code, but 
um, you know, I, f I feel like we as an industry, we care too much about that stuff. So, well, I think that gives, I mean, that, that also lends to why we use types a lot of times, like why we have Scala even exists. How um, so? Is that, that exactly that <laughs> for performance and yeah. like getting things monomorphic. Yeah. Eh, I don't know. I think the, I think the jury's out on that. Um, I mean, I write, I write closure code. That's suit. That's high performance and uh, it, you know, it meets the business needs and succinct and all, all that stuff. But I, I mean, I understand where types apply to performance. Um, but uh yeah, I don't know. Well, it's it's. I, I look forward to many many more decades of this battle, um, and I hope things like TVM eventually win. <laughs> well, you know, like the other thing that Clojure, so Clojure has everything you need for a high performance. It can't possibly not because if it really comes to it, then I can get an AST from Clojure and I can write the bytecode myself. Mm -hmm. And that's that's actually what I do in data type for indexing. Because you can imagine if I have images which have a million entries easy in an image, then the price it costs to access any individual element is going to be a big factor on whatever operation I do on that image. So when I index, when, I, when you do a select operation from an image to mm -hmm. another image, basically, you select a square out of an image because you want to do something, and this relates to like tiling in the weather forecaster, then I actually generate bytecode for that exact operation. So there's there's a little bytecode generator that runs that says, well, I know this is a two-dimensional thing and it's got a, the first dimension has a stride of this and off we go. Interesting. So you just, you, you dynamically load that. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, which I have a fallback in case the dynamic stuff isn't available. So, I, you know, who knows what I'm going to support next. I don't support Growl Native right now. I, I concretely don't. So I'm sorry if people are really huge fans of that. That's expensive for me to support because of a few things. Yeah, um, you have to sort of think think about uh, your dependencies way ahead of time with Graal yep. Native. As soon as you pull in something, you know, it's a it's a non-starter. So yeah, and it's also something that if we want to invest in, we can support better. But it's got to prove that it's worth it. Yeah, I mean that that's a that's a whole. That's a whole trade-off there. Um, mm -hmm. Well, I wanted to ask you our um, traditional send-off question, which is to impart on the listener some unsolicited advice. So what do you got for us today, Chris? What do I got for you today? Man, with the climate of today, too. I would say... Um, the one advice I have for right now that I would actually give everybody is, um, don't focus on the pain that everybody's going through with this virus. Focus on what good things could come from this. Um, so an example is potentially slowing down our economy gives us time to think about how we want to live our lives. To pause and, and to be conscious. Yep, exactly. Hmm. I think that do we is... need an economy that operates at a thousand miles a second all the time? Like, do we need to be driving everywhere? Do we need all these things? Can we can we somehow 
think about how things are going to look if we just take a break for a minute. Because right now you're going to take a break. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, yeah, it's definitely given given me extra time to reflect about about things. Yeah, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna add one piece of advice to yours, which is stay six feet apart and wash your hands. Absolutely. And with, and with that, um, <laughs> I want to thank my guest, Chris. Hey, thank it's you been very much. Super interesting great. talking to you. Um, yep. And I look forward to um, seeing what seeing what you do. Yeah, so. same. We'll see you online. All right. Thanks again. Later. You have been listening to the CogniCast. The CogniCast is brought to you by Cognitech. We're a team of thoughtful, experienced technologists. Our passion is helping organizations from the smallest startups to the Fortune 50 deploy a technology effectively and humanely. We're here to help you build better futures. You can find us on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at at Cognitech. You can subscribe to the CogniCast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art, show notes, and episode transcripts at our home on the web, cognitech.com slash CogniCast. You can contact the show by tweeting at CogniCast or by emailing us at podcast at cognitech.com. Our guest this week was Chris Norenberger. You can find Chris on the web at techascent.com. That's T-E-C-H-A-S-C-E-N-T dot com. Our host was Gotti Shaban, who is at Smash the Past on Twitter. Episode cover art is by me, Russ Olson, with apologies to the old Johnny Quest TV show. Audio production is by Joe Smith and Jarrett Benford. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is by Ben Camphouse, who produces music as Pattern Shift. Look for it on any of the major streaming services. I'm Russ Olson. Thanks for listening and take care of yourself out there.